You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I survived the 2023 Los Angeles hurricane. worked a bunch, had probably too much fun on a Friday night last night, and now it's recording day once more. I don't know where the time goes, but it seems to be going faster every single day. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got the 20th anniversary remaster of Old Boy. Okay, I saw this movie and the English language remake with, I think it's Josh Brolin, like a million years ago. And somehow, I don't know how, I completely blocked out the twist of this film. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but if you don't know, it's, it's a doozy and it's real messed up. For the uninitiated, Old Boy is about a kind of troubled man who is imprisoned in a mysterious cell for 15 years until he is released and sets out to find out who locked him away and why. Violence, chaos, and sometimes, yes, even humor ensue. I remembered this film being amazing, but I did not remember the end. If you're a fan of the film, it's a really great remaster, and I enjoyed it watching this movie on a big screen as much as you can enjoy a film with that ending. I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not over it. I saw it on, I think, Tuesday. It's Saturday now, and I'm still scarred, and I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not going to forget what the hell this movie was about a second time. Also, if I was able to, like, block this out, it did bring into question, like, what else I've, like, mentally blocked out, so that's a... Issue for therapy, which is not this. <laughs> Strike updates. Remember when I said that uh, everyone was being civil? Uh, <laughs> that changed this week when the AMPTP publicly released the deal that was being offered to the writers. The goal was definitely to not only get the members of the guild who are not privy to what is being offered typically when they go back and forth, only to the final deals or what kind of is not being addressed or what is being addressed inadequately. But they usually don't get a look at like the whole deal, which the AMPTP released. And uh, it was definitely a, a strategic move, not only to get the members of the Writers Guild to turn on the negotiating committee, but also to get the rest of the industry individuals to turn on them as the deal had some pretty substantial raises compared to what most people get in professions, including those in entertainment. Of course, always go after what you think you're worth. But seeing what is being said no to has definitely caused some some low-key grumblings. No one's going to be actively, um, no one's going to be the face of of the opposition to the writers doing this other than the AMPTP because it's not a good look. But there are there are grumblings. I can I can tell you that much. Keep in mind, with all this happening, the writers are on strike and the actors are on strike and nothing is getting made right now. But they are still receiving income through residuals. It is 
probably actually no, it's definitely substantially reduced to what they'd be making if they were working right now. But it's a hell of a lot more than what the below the line workers are getting, which is more often than not, probably a big old goose egg because they're giggers. They probably don't have or don't qualify for unemployment. So right now, people who work below the line and do not get residuals, they've not had a paycheck probably unless they're doing like other side stuff or have gotten a different job, have not been paid in four months. Arguably, they're the ones being the most punished by this, not the studios that are being protested. If anybody is interested or has some extra cash or is looking to help out in any way, I'll throw a link in the show notes. There's a few organizations that are taking donations to support the members of the crew who are the most often looked members of the film industry to support them through these strikes, because this is clearly just not going to end soon because everybody's mad and everyone feels like they're going to settle. And if they settle, they lose. And that's not what it is. But everybody's just too deep into this rabbit hole. And it's it's a mess right now. And I honestly, unless a lot changes really fast, dude, I remain neutral as always. But the AMPTP publishing that deal, that that was a hell of a move. So with that chipper news on to this week's topic. This week, we're doing our final speed run for now, Um, and this week we're doing the development of Latinx representation in Hollywood films, starting from the silent era all the way up to the modern day. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. When Blue Beetle opened last weekend, it became the most recent in a long line of Latinx representation in Hollywood, stretching all the way back to the silent age. And as you're probably assuming correctly, that early representation was typically not ideal and also relatively racist. One of the most popular genres in the early days of cinema was the Western, where a lot of these negative tropes were not born, but definitely bred. This genre excited the white filmgoers of the day as Westerns were a glimpse into Manifest Destiny, a popular belief at the time that America, the white Americans anyway, would unite the country from sea to shining sea. Any group that threatened that Western progression, such as indigenous peoples or Mexicans post-1850, were characterized as adversaries. In general, early film companies were capitalizing on this Anglo-American fear that people generally had of Mexicans and started making something called quote-unquote greaser films. If you don't know what greaser means, like I'm sure you've heard it in films over the years, it's is a derogatory term for a non-Anglo or lower-class person. The greaser term originates from the 19th century when Mexican-American laborers would put grease on their backs to aid in unloading cargo and just other heavy things, wheel axle stuff. It just made that whole process easier. Of course, many more of these stereotypes that were about to be portrayed in film stretch back centuries. Those stereotypes, typically the Mexican or Mexican-American ones anyway, included that... 
group of individuals as being lazy, deceptive, or punchy when it came to bandits, or over-sexualized and quote-unquote passionate when they were playing Latin lovers, or for women, they were often categorized as being like the demure senorita or the spicy spitfire. These characters were always supporting and had exactly zero depth to them and made sure to label these individuals as different and or other. And of course, the bandits were a convenient villain to pit a tall, quote unquote, all-American looking cowboy against. Of course, these parts allowed many Latin descent individuals to make a career within the film industry, but of course, they were quite limited in what they could do and how high they could climb within that industry. They basically had to get in that box and stay in it. During the silent era, um, Latinx performers would also be cast as other races, including Pacific Islanders, indigenous people, and even Jewish people because they were in higher abundance in Los Angeles than those other groups. And it was easier just to hire one of them instead of actively going and looking for somebody who fit that actual racial background. Many Latinx performers from this era would also shed their ethnic identities if they could pass as white, changing their names to try and attain that elusive Hollywood fame. One of the major early films showing Latinx characters, though they were played by white actors, was directed by D.W. Griffith, who shot his short in Old California to romanticize the mythos of the state and promote tourism of the region. This occurred during a time when the studios were looking or actively moving west because Thomas Edison was trying to sue everybody into oblivion for making movies, which, to oversimplify for the less voracious listeners of the podcast, he claimed to be the exclusive owner of all the tech. A lot of studios relocated to the West Coast to be as geographically distant from the East Coast-based Edison, which is why, you know, they were there and there were a lot of people of Latin descent there. So that's kind of how that shook out. While other films after In Old California were made featuring Hispanic or Latino characters, unsurprisingly, many of these films were in part produced by European immigrants who liked the idea of the American dream, but had no context for the cultures that existed in California or the United States in general long before Columbus or whomever got here and started all this mess. Some Latinx performers did break through out of these supporting roles during this time, including Beatriz Mijalena, who would become an early leading lady in the silent era. Based out of San Francisco, she would even produce some of her films, including Salome Jane from 1914. She never rose to household fame like Clara Bose, but she did provide inspiration for Theda Berra's Vamp. But despite that, Mijalena is not widely known. Other notable silent film individuals of Latin descent include Antonio Moreno, who made a name for himself as a Latin lover and was one of the few to transition from silent films to talkies. There is also Ramon Navarro, who was not only a pioneer of Latino cinema in America, but also in LGBTQ cinema. He was also a standout in the 1959 film Ben-Hur. There is also Rita Hayworth, born Carmen Cancino, who became one of the most iconic actresses to ever grace the silver screen. Once sound had become standard in film, Latinx actors and actresses were now deemed too jarring to lead Hollywood pictures in any meaningful way, most of the time because accent. So the few that had managed to transcend the racial barrier now found themselves back into supporting roles like comedic relief or servants or villains if they couldn't drop their accent. They thought people wouldn't be able to understand them. I was like, do you understand them fine when they're talking day to day? But, you know, why bring logic into this? Behind the scenes at this time, artists like Marcel Delgado were doing things like designing King Kong. Delgado designed not only the models 
of the ape, but also a 20-foot King Kong head, and also the hand that Fay Ray sat in as Kong traversed the Empire State Building in RKO's 1933 classic. With the onset of the Great Depression, audiences preferred the quote-unquote all-American vibe, meaning white actors as their leading men and women, and with scarce jobs due to the Great Depression and a deep-set belief in Anglo society that the Latinos were quote-unquote taking their jobs. During this era, many of the minor Latin roles were given to white actors in brownface. This was a practice that would continue well into the 60s, arguably too far into the 60s. See Marlon Brando in Viva Zapata in 1952, and probably one of the most famous ones, Russian descent Natalie Wood in 1961's West Side Story. Frustrated with how they were being portrayed in Hollywood films, Latin American countries actually began boycotting Hollywood films and invested in their own film studios and markets instead. In Mexico, this indirectly yielded their golden age of cinema. In response, because they didn't want to lose money, Hollywood producers attempted to separate the negative Latino characters from basically having a country of origin. So they were just generic, offensive representations of Latinx people as a whole, because that was the problem, the country the character was from. In 1933, the U.S. signed an agreement with several Latin American countries to protect its interests there. This would become known as the Good Neighbor Policy, which did a lot of trade commerce things. But for our purposes today, the deal also promised, and largely failed, to hype up Latin America in the United States through films shot by Hollywood filmmakers in Latin America, and in part they would also use Latin American talent. The positive thing this did bring was more Latin representation in Hollywood films. The U.S. also hoped to make up some of their financial shortcomings as the European film markets were closed to U.S. exports during World War II. Films from The Good Neighbor Policy include Weekend in Havana from 1941 and Disney's The Three Caballeros from 1945. These musicals, quote-unquote, discovered international stars like Cuban performer Desi Arnaz and Brazilian performer Carmen Miranda, who we discussed briefly last week. Carmen Miranda would be the unofficial poster girl for the good neighbor policy throughout. 350,000 Mexican-Americans fought in World War II, and there was even a few films during and after the war that recognized their part in it. This included A Medal for Benny from 1945 and Battleground, also from 1945, which starred Ricardo Montalban, whom you nerds will know better as Khan from Star Trek II. But despite these and other films, most Latinx characters and representation were removed from the majority of World War II films, and POC veterans, by and large, were treated deplorably, despite having been willing to lay down their lives for their country that reacted indifferently toward their very existence. After the war, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, Hollywood briefly turned their head toward other races and cultures, and an increase of the quote-unquote social problem film genre, which featured a more realistic style of filmmaking while focusing on the problems of the day, occurred. The films that focused on Latinx representation had a complete opposite tone of the films produced during the Good Neighbor policy and more accurately portrayed the American Latinx experience. The film Ride the Pink Horse from 1947, which deals with a veteran returning from war, co-starred Thomas Gomez, who would become the first individual of Spanish descent to be nominated for an Oscar. In 1950, Jose Ferrer became the first Latino to win an Oscar, winning Best Actor for playing the titular character in Serrano de Bergerac. 
1954's Salt of the Earth is probably the best example of the social conscious film era. This film is about a Mexican-American miners' strike and was actually shot at the locations the event the film was based on took place. The film was also noted for its portrayal of strong, independent female characters, which was a rarity no matter who the film was dealing with at that time. After a 1945 hurricane ravaged the territory, a large number of Puerto Ricans migrated to the mainland, with many settling in New York and Chicago. Within a decade, New York Puerto Ricans were associated with all kinds of poverty, crime, and juvenile delinquency, which Hollywood would reflect in films like Blackboard Jungle from 1959 and, most famously, West Side Story from 1961. Speaking of West Side Story, Rita Moreno would take home an Oscar for her work as Anita in that film, becoming the first Latina American actress to win Best Supporting Actress. The next Latina to take home this award was 51 years later, when Kenyan-Mexican actress Lupita Nyong'o won for 12 Years a Slave. A Latina actress has never won the Best Acting Oscar. This genre boom of socially conscious films was unfortunately short-lived thanks to the Red Scare and the rise of anti-communist sentiment. And for whatever reason, caring about or trying to bring awareness to disenfranchised individuals and communities and situations was considered communistic. I still don't fully understand why, but here we are. After that, for the better part of a decade or so, any filmmakers critical of the U.S. government or thought to have ties to communistic countries or just communism in general were blacklisted from the industry. During the civil rights movements of the 1960s and early 70s, activists, in addition to fighting for the rights of African Americans, also fought against discrimination against Latin American communities. Latin American descent individuals, even those who had fought for our country, like I said, in World War II, were actively discriminated against in pretty much all aspects of life. People of color couldn't even really train to help those in their own communities, as most would be denied from medical schools and etc., based on nothing more than the color of their skin and where their ancestors were from. So it comes as no surprise that Chicanos and Latinos also demanded acknowledgement in not only all U.S. institutions, but also film, TV, media in general, as they should. Protests took place during the 1970 Academy Awards over the way Latinos were being portrayed in two of the year's nominated films, The Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, both of which had scenes of ravenous Mexicans that just had to be killed by white men. In general, there was next to no positive Latino characters outside of stereotypical Western roles at this time. It's very similar to basically how they were being portrayed in the 1910s. And many times, like back in the 1910s, it was non-Latino actors portraying them. For example, Egyptian-born Omar Sharif played Che Guevara in the 1969 film Che. It also has an exclamation point at the end of it, which I've not seen this film, but it's like, why does that make me think it's like a musical or some weird shit? Anyway, Western films would morph into the renegade cop films and the cowboy became a cop, basically. But one thing that didn't change was the stereotypical roles given to Latino performers in the films. Badge 373 from 1973, for example, caused an uproar in the Puerto Rican activist community due to the film's inaccurate portrayal of their independence movement. 
Eventually, thanks in part to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of 1969, greater access to schooling and job training for the Latino community, other communities of color as well, but obviously we're not dealing with them today, led to higher employment for Latinos in the U.S. television and film industries. Though it did not yield as many as it could have because racists gonna racism, and those people made it quite difficult for a significant number of Latinos to qualify for the entertainment unions. But overall, this did lead to Chicano and Latino artists that could reclaim their cultural identities and tell their stories their way. This started with short films. These shorts were typically about activism or hot button issues of the day, and for the most part, are considered to be the first wave of Chicano, Puerto Rican, and Cuban American cinema. These activist filmmakers, many of whom were the first Latinos admitted into film schools, included Montezuma Esparza, who was a leader during student walkouts at UCLA in the 60s, Silvia Morales, and Luis Valdez. These filmmakers were considered to be anti-Hollywood and their films would reflect that and were ignored for the most part by Hollywood at first, unsurprisingly. The films that they made were mostly documentaries that highlighted social issues while celebrating Mexican-American culture and identity. This includes I Am Joaquin from 1969, Garment Workers from 1975, and Chicana from 1979. It probably doesn't surprise anybody that many of these films dealt with the issue of immigration, which of course has been a hot button issue in the States for well over a century. Immigration was explored in Borderline from 1980. As political chaos struck Central America, leading to an influx of immigration from that area, films exploring the issue of the region, like Under Fire from 1983, were made. Gang violence was also a biggie and was a topic of The Warriors from 1979. Eventually, filmmakers from this movement, notably Luis Valdez and Montezuma Esparza, hit the mainstream. Valdez made his major motion picture debut with 1981's Zoot Suit, an adaptation of his Broadway show and based on the Zoot Suit riots of the 1940s. The film received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical. Valdez went on to write and direct La Bamba from 1987, which was a biopic about Richie Valens. It's also a film that my Spanish teacher in high school really liked to show us during class. Like, I think in the two years I took high school Spanish, I saw that film like five times solely in that class. I don't know what that was about, but um, not a great film for speaking Spanish because I'm pretty sure Richie Valens could be misremembering this. But I think it was like Richie Valens and Selena, neither of them could actually speak Spanish or couldn't speak it very well anyway. Montezuma Esparza took a slightly different route at first and is best known for his documentary Aguera Martinez, Our People, Our Country from 1977, for which he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Short Subject. Esparza has gone on to have a very lucrative producing career, including major hits like Gettysburg from 1993 and Selena from 1997. Due to these new opportunities for Latino film representation and Hollywood's newfound discovery of the pockets of the Latinx audience members, the 1980s were named the, quote, decade of the Hispanic in the media. Hard to argue given the just absolute hardcore output of major studio productions starring Latin performers, male Latin performers, I should uh, put a uh, asterisk on, including El Norte from 1983, Born in East L.A. from 1987, and Stand and Deliver from 19. One issue that was being widely ignored, it seemed, was Latina representation in Hollywood films. 
For half a century, Latina roles were very often either played by a white woman, again, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, or just made white, like in 2001's A Beautiful Mind. John Nash's wife, played by Jennifer Connelly in the film, was Salvadorian in real life, which Connelly was not, is not. In 1992, Luis Valdez announced that he'd cast an Italian descent actress as Frida Kahlo in his film Frida and Diego. This news outraged the Latinx Hollywood community, and on August 6, 1992, a committee publicly denounced not just this casting choice, but the shitty casting practices of Hollywood as a whole. Valdez would later state in the press that he was forced to cast the actress to appease New Line Cinema, the studio financing the film. It further brought to the forefront a hard truth that Latina actresses were likely all too aware of, and that was that there was no household name and therefore no quote-unquote bankable Latina actress actresses working in Hollywood, at least in that age group. Unsurprisingly, due to the swath of controversy, Frida and Diego was never made. Shortly after all of this, New Line dropped it from development. Also in 1992, Selma Hayek, who would play Frida in the film Frida a decade later, moved to Hollywood to pursue better career opportunities. After she became an international name, she managed to get Frida produced after a series of obstacles, and that film and a few others, Selena notably, led to a watershed moment for Latina roles in Hollywood because they proved that they could also, I mean, they'd been proving it forever, but they proved to, you know, the people with money who aren't good at looking at into things that Latina actresses could not only lead a film, but could lead a film that garnered critical acclaim and made money at the box office. So that that led to a lot more Latina actresses being able to enter the industry. It's far from perfect, but at the same time, current Hollywood has way more Latina actresses in their talent pool than they did in 1992. By and large, the 1990s and early 2000s continue seeing progress in Latinx storytelling. This renewed interest, of course, led to a rise in Hollywood film stars of Hispanic and Latino descent, including Javier Bardem, Rosario Dawson, John Leguizamo, Jennifer Lopez, America Herrera, Michael Pena, Zoe Saldana, and Benicio Del Toro, and so, 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 so many others. Penelope Cruz. How did I forget Penelope Cruz? But like most minority groups in Hollywood, their representation still leaves a lot to be desired. According to a study released by the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, which featured an analysis of the top 1,300 box office films released between 2007 to 2019, showed that only 5% of speaking characters in these films were Hispanic or Latino. Approximately 19% of the U.S. is Hispanic or Latino racially. So if the goal is to hypothetically you know, reflect the cultural makeup of the country within which these films are being made, they're falling about 14% short, which is that basically means they need to like, it needs to be three times higher than what it currently is, ideally. Of these characters, this 5% of characters, only 3.5% of them were leads or co-leads. Top billed Hispanic or Latino characters in 2019 were mainly that of criminals that made up 39.5% of the roles in organized crime, which made up 6.7% of the roles or involved with violent crime. That was another 40%. And things don't get better when you look behind the camera. Of those 1,300 films in this study, only 35 directors were Latinx and only three were women. Hispanic and Latinx producers accounted for just 3%. Keep in mind, the ideal bar here is around 19%, so way off. 
And of course, there's very little representation of the different communities within the Latinx community. There is next to no representation of LGBTQ Latinx characters or disabled characters or, you know, anything kind of like that. Another major lacking is roles for the Afro-Latino community who are often overlooked or omitted from films for one reason or another. I think it mostly has to do with uh, skin tone, which is like, it's 2023, get the fuck over it. But yeah, a major example of this occurred in 2021 when Lin-Manuel Miranda's adaptation of his musical In the Heights was critiqued by some due to its lack of Afro-Latina characters. There was only one actor in the main cast of Afro-Latino descent, and the filmmakers were accused of erasing them from a neighborhood whose real-life population is actually predominantly Afro-Latinx. Despite these statistics, there are films with positive Hispanic and Latinx representation, and it is, very slowly, becoming a bit more common. For example, an Afro-Latino character, Miles Morales, is the lead of the widely popular animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The first one came out in 2018. The last one just came out like a few months ago. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, Blue Beetle just came out. It was a live action superhero film and the cast was predominantly, almost entirely Latino in background. I think it was just Susan Sarandon who wasn't. So that's actually quite quite the flip from basically all other cinema. There was also supposed to be a Latina Batgirl, but we all know what Warner did with that. Like I said, baby steps. I mentioned them a few weeks ago, but three of... Arguably the best modern directors in Hollywood right now hail from Mexico, Guillermo del Toro, Alejandro Iñárritu, and Alfonso Cuarón. These so-called three amigos, as they're typically known together, have not only made scores of films showing the robust culture of their homeland, but also have made heavy-hitting Hollywood blockbusters that showcase their immense talent as storytellers, regardless of origin. Cuarón directed a Harry Potter film, for God's sake. While there is a long, long way to go to equality, Latinx artists both in front of and behind the camera have made notable strides to not only entertain, but to also tell their stories. It's relieving to see representation expanding and even seeing roles going to actors or performers of Latin descent that aren't necessarily showing their racial identity as part of the story. Think like, I'm I'm wording this very poorly, but think like American Ferreira's character in the Barbie movie that just came out. That character didn't need to be Latina. have been any single race on the planet. It was just she was mostly just representing like womanhood. But that character didn't have to be that, which is which is a huge thing, because typically those parts in Hollywood for decades and decades and decades would always go to a Caucasian person. And that one did not. I'm wording this very poorly, but that's that's essentially you get you what I mean, right? Like it's not about just it's just being a person more so than just being a person who is this. I am way over explaining this. I'm just going to move on. What we can say for sure is that in this moment, Hollywood is finally, if if begrudgingly, sometimes it feels, making content that shows Latinx actors and characters as more than just background characters or harmful stereotypes of their cultures. And for now, the future of Latinos in Hollywood is probably the strongest it's ever been in film history. Now, we just need Netflix to stop coloring all the films and TV shows that take place in Latin America that ugly orange-yellow color. That's what's important, right? That's the next step.
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I'm drinking some Phil's cold brew because I found out this week that they sell it in big ass bottles. So I have a big ass bottle of Phil's cold brew in my fridge. And that's probably why I'm literally just vibrating in my chair right now. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're looking into the lives and careers of some of the most famous actresses to ever grace the 50s silver screen. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.